ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, yo, beautiful people, how's it going? Hope you're all doing well, wherever you are in the world. And just before we jump in with this podcast to deal with Anthony Peak, I just wanted to see, see that you guys out there are really, truly awesome. As I mentioned in the last intro, currently in my life at the moment, I've been going through some interesting things and I've also, you can call them challenging, you can call them moments in your life that allow you to, to um, grow or change your trajectory or change your path. But as you know, we all go through different stages in our lives where the universe does interesting things and the whole course of your life is changed. Maybe that's through a coincidence. Maybe the universe just does it. And also at the same time, as you guys are very similar to me, we're always constantly evolving and working on new concepts and new ideas. And we're constantly evolving our lives. And that can at times be challenging because it's, maybe changes your old life that you used to have or, or contradicts with the old some of the old th- things and old patterns and behaviors you you um have been used to so as you know as we're all coming through a transition now in our journeys and always evolving and ascending it can be quite challenging and i would just as i mentioned in the intro last week i have definitely just come through a period of that and you as i mentioned it you guys reached out and really were sending some really awesome messages of love and you really have been doing that over the last few weeks and it really means a lot you guys didn't have to do that but you guys took it upon yourselves just to reach out and it always just says to me again and again that you guys out there are awesome and this community that we have it works both ways you guys i help you and you all guys also help me so i love you all that's all i wanted to say on that one thank you so much for that so anyway this week on the podcast is a really powerful conversation this is actually only recorded one day ago and I've really I've put this together and edited it up as soon as I could because it really is a cool one. So hopefully no more Zoom conversations, no more online conversations. This is back to online, back to in-person conversations and what a way to start again with the in-person conversations. I headed down towards the Brighton area of the UK to do a conversation with the great Anthony Peake. He's been on the podcast many times. He really is one of the most highly um, recommended guests again and again because he does go really deep down the rabbit hole, as you know. If you don't know who Anthony Peake is, he is um, an author of best-selling titles, The Outer Body Experience, The Infinite Mind, The Immortal Mind, Open Up the Doors of Perception, The Hidden Universe. He's also wrote books called the Damien also wrote a book all about the nature of time so he really does he is a researcher who as you know is questioning many different conversations and this is the fifth time that Anthony has been on the podcast I went to his place over the weekend and we recorded this conversation here so it's fresh off the canvas and it really is a cool one we talk about many different topics from synchronicities to the nature of time to consciousness this one went all over the place I know you're going to love it and just if you can guys check out the one-off donation option or the patreon page it helps me to keep doing what i'm doing and it allows you to support a conscious movement and a conscious community which is this podcast and it just allows me like i said to keep the lights on so i love you all and enjoy this conversation this beast of a conversation with anthony peak peace out start because as you know we've spoken many times on the podcast now and we have really scraped so many different topics so i've always trying to 
every time we have these conversations I'm always trying to sort of bring maybe some new concepts and new ideas that maybe haven't been brought forward I know that's hard because you are talking about so much stuff but just to, to start this conversation I'm, I mean we've talked many times about how and brought the the theory forward and the understanding that consciousness could definitely pers- persist beyond the body I would love to know with that because in my life that's I'm leaning towards that I know you're leaning towards that a lot of listeners who watch this podcast and listen to the podcast are leaning towards that but with that deeper understanding that consciousness does persist beyond the body how do you think going forward as a civilization that could um, affect us if we had that deeper understanding well I think it has quite a few implications here the first implication for me is that if we start to realize that consciousness is not embodied, that is consciousness, in the, consciousness is not created by the brain, but is facilitated by the brain, it then suggests some quite interesting points because it suggests that if consciousness is not embodied, it means we are not embodied. It means that whatever we are, we exist somewhere else other than the brain. If that is the case, it then suggests that possibly other consciousnesses are much more deeply related to us than we'd ordinarily believe because we wander around a little bit like islands you know was there was one famous statement i think was it was it uh, pope i can't remember the, the poet but no man is an island and that is true and i think the there was a guy called um book who wrote a book around about 120 years ago american philosopher and he argued that there is almost an ocean of consciousness and that we are like waves on an ocean of consciousness and we are just a wave that comes up for a short period of time, our lifetime, and then goes back into the sea of this consciousness. Now, if this is the case, then it means that all humanity and all sentient beings are effectively one consciousness experiencing itself subjectively, which means that we are all part of the same thing. So suddenly when I impose pain upon somebody else, when I cause distress to somebody else, Effectively, I'm causing distress to myself in effectively the same way. And again, it's clear, there's a good deal of evidence for this because an awful lot of people I know who have have experienced near-death experiences always argue and say that you have a past life review, a panoramic life review, but you also have a panoramic life review of the impact your actions had on other people. And I'll give an example of this because it really is quite interesting. There was um, an associate of mine called Bill Murtha and in 1999, Bill was cycling along the, um, the train path um, in near Dawlish in Devon. And he was cycling along and a wave came over the, the top of the, the seawall, knocked him off the bike. He then tried to pick the bike up and another wave came along and threw him into the sea. And the tide was going out. And he was a strong swimmer, but he was still in a difficult position. He was suffering from hypothermia. And while he was doing this, he had a series of extraordinary experiences. And one of them was particularly extraordinary because he found himself back being seven years old in the East End of London running across the street. And as he runs across the street, he gets hit by a car and his leg was broken. And he felt the pain of the car hitting him and everything else as well. And he thought, yeah, that happened to me when I was a child. But then suddenly he's out of of the body of the child again. And suddenly he's looking down at a woman's leg and she's, her hands are fiddling and she's got a ladder in her stocking. And he's, she's looking at the ladder of the stocking. And then she looks up to see a little boy. She's driving a car. And she says, he's a little boy run across the road. And she hits the car, hits the child. And he said, I felt all the pain, all the distress and all the fear that she felt having hit me in the car. And he concluded that that is evidence that, you know, in some way we're all one consciousness. And of course, in the final analysis on that, I use the famous Bill Hicks, the American uh, comedian quote, when he said, we're all one consciousness experiencing ourselves subjectively. And this, this is strongly true. And the, the overall concept of this is something called pandeism, which I contributed a chapter to a book um, a few years ago, um, edited by a guy called Kanunji Mapson about this very subject. Now, this means that if we suddenly start to realize this, it means that we will become far more literally human in terms of our relationships with other people. We'll realize that we are not alone and our, our actions have impacts. And it might then extend out to nature itself, you know, other, 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 other lives, other existences, other consciousnesses other than human consciousnesses also are affected by our actions. 
So I think this is something very promising for the future, I think. And right. I think COVID is focusing, is focusing us on this. And I think there's many things that's doing that. I mean, when you said there about the, in connect, the connectivity aspect and, and realizing that we're not as separate as we've been led to believe, um, it's really interesting because I, a question I want to ask you from that is, is with that deeper understanding, what I feel sometimes that conscious, consciousness prevails, when you when you step with inside yourself and you understand that consciousness is connected in ways that we don't fully understand and you step through that doorway within the self, it feels like, um, and I know you've spoke about this before, about how, for, for me, synchronicities start, um, you know, like in this world that we live in now, you know, we have like, it's very much in the phys- it's, it's very much in the physical, you know, but there seems to be a blending of the two. Like through my experience that I'm having now, the blending of the two where as I'm getting more and more to know myself, it feels like dreams are becoming more and more heightened, synchronicities are becoming more and more heightened. And it's actually, I mean, I know ancient cultures in the past, they always believed that, they 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 um they put in their through their lives and the way they lived their lives they actually held dreams and synchronicities above the physical you know so i'm feeling like that when we i mean we'd be question from that is is that when we do have this deeper understanding of consciousness and we do fully sort of embody that that aspect of this place maybe that's why we experience more and more synchronicities and actually hold them for more value in our lives and our mind well as taiho de chardin said you know we are we are um, a, phys- a, a spiritual being having a physical existence. Mm. And I suspect that the answer to this may lie probably in, in quantum physics. And the idea that reality, physical reality, material reality that we think is all so solid and so material isn't. And that our acts of observation is what creates the world around us. And it's a, it's something I'm working with at the moment, together with a group of associates, on what we're calling the egregorial hypothesis. And effectively, as you probably know, in quantum physics, a subatomic particle, until it is observed or measured, exists in what's called a statistical wave. Max Born came up with this idea in 1924. And Born said that the the wave function of subatomic particles is similar to a crime wave. It's non-physical, it's statistical, it's mathematical. So a subatomic particle, until it is observed, can be literally anywhere in the universe. But statistically, it's likely to be in one place rather than another by the pure laws of probability. But until it is observed, it isn't anywhere. It is just a statistical wave. But the minute it's observed, it reduces into a physical point particle. Now, these point particles collectively make up the physical universe that we think is also real. So there seems to be a direct relationship between your thoughts and your observations and the reality that surrounds you. So therefore, it is not at all surprising that this reality in some way reflects back on you. because And it reflects back on your expectations, it reflects back on your mood and everything else. Now, I'm not a great believer in the idea of the law of attraction. I think that is far too simplistic. It's far more complex than that. But in my life, for instance, I've noticed that synchronicities increase when you become aware of them. Now, there is a logical argument to say, well, this is, this is literally the, um, a physical law in the sense that you are looking for the things, so you see them everywhere. But we know that synchronicities are far more peculiar than that. Synchronicities are extraordinary. And remind me towards the end of this interview, I'll show you, I'll physically show you something that you will find extraordinary, um, which I've never actually shown properly before. We could do that now if you want, if you want to cut the filming or not. Let's, let's do it. Okay, okay, let's fine. This will blow your Jump mind. Jump back and I'll put it in, just let listeners know. I've got to see this. Right. If you read my book, The Daemon, A Guide to Your Extraordinary Secret Self, in the introductory chapter, I have some, a section called Footprints in the Snow. And by Footprints in the Snow, I'm arguing that I had been led to write my first book, Is There Life After Death? Through Extraordinary Signs of What Happens When We Die. And I cite an example of how I know that myself in my own past was preparing me for this. And this is what happened. I was doing research on mitochondria. Now, mitochondria are organelles inside the, the, um, the cells of all, all the cells in our body. An organelle is, is a kind of an, an, um, a group of tiny things that exist within the cell. 
What is interesting about mitochondria is its DNA is different. The DNA of mitochondria is difficult to, different to our normal DNA, and it's carried through the female line. So it's very interesting because you can do some very interesting work with mitochondrial DNA. But I was intrigued by the role of DNA, and I went to my bookcase. Now, as you've seen, I have extensive bookcases and lots and lots of books. And I went to my books. This was in 2002, probably. And I went to my bookcase and I thought, who is likely to have written on DNA, mitochondrial DNA? And I thought, of course, Richard Dawkins. You know, that it might, it might come as a surprise to you, but I'm a great fan of Richard Dawkins. I think he's mis, mis, he gets things wrong sometimes, but I think his writing is, is extremely good. And I went to my bookcase and I picked up the book, The Blind Watchmaker. Okay. Now, one thing I never do with books, I love books, so I never dog ear pages. It's something that's profoundly important to me. So I picked up. What do you mean book. by that? What do you mean by that? I'll show you. I'll show you okay. by dog earing. I picked up the book and I started to look at it and I noticed something quite strange. One of the pages has been turned over and turned down. It's something I never do in books. As I opened the book, a voice in my head. My daemon, my higher self, said, I've done this for you. And I opened the page, and there's one page that's dog-eared. Okay? It is the only page that mentions mitochondria in any of his books. Mm -hmm. I had, about six or seven years before, been on a beach in Greece, a place called Pedi on the island of Simi. I'd gone up for lunch. I suddenly remembered doing that and thinking at the time, why did you do that? My old self had left me a clue to the fact that I was being guided by this. Then, two days ago, I'm discussing with uh, my research team, myself and two others doing research and planning to write an academic paper on egregores and everything else as well. And one of my associates, uh, Mariam Abadi, suggested that maybe we should think of either contacting or researching the life of a guy called Matthew Manning, who is, um, was at the time a very, very famous seer and um, medium. This book here. Now I had this book in my bookcase. I went to the, the book and I remembered why I had a copy of this because my first book uh, is the Life After Death was published by Arcturus and my consultant editor for that book was a lady called uh, Tessa Rose. She actually wrote this book, although Matthew, it's supposed to be his autobiography, Tessa actually wrote it. So I take the book out of the bookcase and believe me, there is another dog here. Now the reason we were looking for this book was we are very interested in something called the... Um, the Toronto experiment, which took place in the early 1970s, where a group of researchers created an entity. They've completely created in their own minds somebody that never existed, and this spirit began to manifest, okay, somebody called Philip. And the, the guy that had actually been involved in working on this was a guy called Owen, okay, an English guy called uh, George Owen. I opened the page, and the page is dog-eared there, here is a reference to George Owen. Wow. Again, my earlier self, and I last read this book again about 15 years ago, clearly had decided that he was going to write and send me a message, which is what came through there. That's wild because it's funny that you mentioned that because literally why she's sitting there is because of that same scenario of what happened there. Because what happened was is i've been going through this period in my life where i'm really sort of my awareness is heightened on a lot of different issues around life and i'm going through that process like you know you, you describe in the damien process where where there's there's a part of yourself that's trying to you know it's trying to make you become a better person it's trying to guide you in certain directions and i had a similar thing where i came across a book and it, like as you see what's the word that you call called a doggy doggy uh, dog eared. Dog eared. Yeah, dog eared. Yeah, yeah. Dog's well, basically, what was in mind was when I got the book and I got to the page, it actually someone had actually put like um or something whatever put it in. It put in like a, um like an envelope over the top with an X marks a spot, 
And what it was, it was basically the point of the question I was asking my life was basically the, the cycle of... Um, the cycle of sort of reincarnation, how the soul comes in, you get choices between love and fear, and if you don't work on them aspects of yourself, you know, you'll come back through the cycle again, reincarnate. And it was just something that was going over my head. And I put that on my Instagram story, and obviously, and Laura wrote, sent her a message to us saying, all the synchronicities. Wow. So it's just interesting how, like, how it, there, like you said, just to validate what you're saying, there is something that, there is, you know, like, there is sort of like an underpinning force within this place that is. You know, it is guiding us and stuff into certain directions. But a question from that as well is I wanted to ask you if, with that being said, because this is sort of like, a, um, there's a dance with this, you know, within myself. It's like, I understand that there is like an independent force that is maybe out of our control and it is guiding us in certain directions. But how much the, how much of that versus, say, the higher self is into playing with that? I would argue. How much is free will into that? Right. I would argue that if you read my book, well, if you read all of my books, but there's an underlying theme. And the underlying theme is that this is some form of simulation. I hate using the word simulation because simulation implies that it's based upon something else. But, it, but it's, ne- it's definitely something more complex than we believe. Now, I would argue from my writings that human consciousness is made up of two elements, the daemon and the Eidolon. The daemon is your higher self. The daemon has lived your life before. The daemon has lived your life many times before as you living your life so imagine the scenario similar to a third person rpg game imagine that the daemon every time you live your life your daemon remembers the mistakes and the errors you made last time like you do when you're a game player when you're playing uh when you're playing a computer game you remember from the last time you played the game the Mm -hmm. mistakes you made that your on-screen sprite makes, that you make and the on-screen sprite dies. That's an Eidolon. The daemon remembers. So that your daemon at all times is manipulating you to be in locations that will help you develop in this life and in subsequent lives. Sometimes the daemon, we were discussing this with my little group recently, that the daemon seems to sometimes place us in positions that are quite we don't understand why it's done it because it seems to be negative but it's planning to get you to the right place in the future so you need to go through this bit of pain in order to get somewhere else now one of the big issues at the moment that really intrigues me is covid because if we all do have a higher self that has lived our lives before and knows everybody's daemons know that covid was going to happen Why did we not have a sense of this? And I believe the reason we didn't was because there's nowhere to escape. You can't escape from COVID. It is everywhere. So therefore, however manipulative your daemon is, it cannot get you somewhere where COVID isn't going to happen. And I believe this is because COVID is going to facilitate something you intimated on before, that it's going to to cause a a change of people's thought patterns in some way. Mm. It's going to change it. It's almost like a reprogramming of the way we think. And the reason that we are having this conversation now, and you and I have discussed this many times, and Laura over there, why are us three here now? Mm -hmm. We are here now because our life has been a series of coincidences coincidence upon coincidence and coincidence to get us sitting here now having this conversation and it's the same with everybody else everybody who listens to this interview you know you will be in a position whereby you have had a series of coincidences to have you sitting here watching me on your computer screen making these com- making these comments and it's 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 planned it doesn't mean that there isn't free will far from it free will exists all the time but you exercise your free will because you can. I use the analogy Groundhog Day, the movie. Connor's in Groundhog maybe Day. He's, he plays his free will all the time. Mm. He makes all these different decisions. And you just, you exhaust all the alternatives. You follow every path through the wood. As uh, Jorge Borges, who is a famous uh, Argentinian writer, he wrote a, uh, a short story called The Garden of the Forking Paths. And this is exactly what he says. We are, we are, we follow, there are so many different paths in our lives. But as one great sage said, there are so many paths up the mountain, but the view from the top is still the same. Wow, powerful stuff, by the way. And just to, to mix things up a bit as well, to try and touch on something that I, I really, I'll, just in case I forget to touch on it. I don't know if you remember, but when we last did the podcast, we talked about the, um, 
I think we, I don't know if this, we were messaging on Facebook or it was through um, when we we're in person, but you mentioned the, the etheric the realm in the King's Chamber. Did you, did you find any more information on that? When you said within the... I know the, you, the King's Chamber within the, the pyramid. Yeah, yeah. I know it was, um, who was it again? Um, Alastair Crowley. I think in his book he mentioned that when he was, um, and he went with his wife to the King's Chamber and he was in a deep state of meditation and he, he found that there was like a, um, a hidden dimension or a etheric realm within the King's Chamber. Did you did you find anything more about that? I didn't. I should have actually discussed this. There's a lady called Patricia A1 uh, who runs the Kemet, Kemet School of Egyptology mm-hmm. in, in Cairo. And funnily enough, I interviewed her comparatively recently as well again. And she has long argued that there are, there are forces of energy that are involved within the pyramids themselves. And again, uh, there is a lady called Serena uh, Dougal, um, Roni Do- Serena Roni Dougal, who has written a series of books on extraordinary experiences. She's a doctor. She has a PhD. Very, very bright lady. Uh, and she, she spoke a few years ago, actually, at Breaking Convention. And when I met her at Breaking Convention, we, we chatted about various things. And again, she mentioned her experiences in the pyramid, mm-hmm. in the Great Pyramid, and how time just virtually stopped for her. She felt she was away for hours and hours and hours up there, but it had only been a few minutes outside. Mm-hmm. So clearly something very extraordinary there it takes place there. And it must be to do with the sacred geometry, the way the building is laid out. And that's something that I think we need to start looking into in greater detail. Yeah, why I also brought it up for as well, because you remind us to touch on it, because with the sort of this this concept of the Damien, where like we do sort, it seems like you said there is there's like sort of an underpinning force that is is guiding us, but we do have free will with it as well. But a question I'm asking myself is if it, if all things are connected, and it also could make the argument that even our past lives and um, we, I mean, we are. There's a theory that says that we we are the people in the past. You know, we're the Native Americans. We are everyone. Mm-hmm. Eventually, sort of living out different lives, and it's like with that information with the with the um, within the pyramid having sort of a hidden realm or hidden dimension. It's like I'm questioning because do we do we place things that are not physical? You know, that we can maybe. I don't know how it works. Maybe on some sort of it's a level that's beyond my comprehension but something like some sort of seed that you can leave for your past self you know so that when you come across it only when you're ready you can find it you know and and maybe these things as you go further down the path these things because you're more open and your your awareness is more accepting of these things that they become they they become more and more magnificent you know what i mean i think it's a really good observation there the idea that the more open you are you're more open to the wonder of life. Mm-hmm. And because you're more open to it, you see it more. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the idea, again, in one of my books, the, the doors opening the doors of perception, the idea that our doors of perception are effectively clo- locked closed because we've locked ourselves into our cave, as William Blake said. And it is only when you start to appreciate the real wonder of exactly what is going on here. You know, I, I saw some statistics recently and they, they mentioned there was something like I don't know, 20 trillion different galaxies in the universe, Mm. which is mind-blowing and staggering. It makes our little life seem inconsequential. But if you take the the writings and the work of people like Professor David Bohm with his implicate and explicate orders, Bohm, the quantum physicist, argued that everything's enfolded in itself like a giant hologram. So, as I once said in one of my books, it's like the Andromeda galaxies in a tear in your eye. It's much deeper than this. We are much more deeper related. And it seems that when you open your mind to the wonder, the wonder comes to you. And suddenly, and I think it's to do with your collapsing your own wave function. You're creating your own reality. And you open up that reality to the egregorial, the mind-created elements of your life. And suddenly you see things that other people don't see. And it's not because you're going crazy. It's because your doors of perception are opening. But other people who are locked in the, cave, the, the inside their cave don't see it. And they genuinely don't see it. And they think you're mad. Um, and it's not. It's just that they're not quite open enough at the moment. Yeah, definitely. How do you think to tie, tie this in? I mean, because something that I've been thinking about a lot lately with what you've just been said is the, the aspect of time. You know, in this in this world that we live in, we know it's all focused around time. But as you have these these greater moments of awareness in your life, and you, for example, if you take psychedelics or something like that, it gives you this great this sort of this bigger awareness that that we are connected to infinite possibilities. We know we're connected to infinite infinite timelines. How how do you think the dynamic of time plays into that? 
Time is the great mystery of life. As St. Augustine said, if I think about time, I understand it and I know what it is until I start to think more deeply and then mm. I became totally, totally confused. I spent 380 pages writing a book, The Labyrinth of Time, to try and understand the philosophy and the science of time. And after that 380 pages, I still didn't really understand it fully. In any Well, I didn't understand it in any shape or form because the idea is, does time flow round us? Do we travel through time? Um, what exactly is it? is it? Is it physical? Well, no, it isn't because there's no physicality about time. And scientists would argue all that time is. It's the third law, third law of thermodynamics. It's just the idea that things wind down and more things become more chaotic as things wind down. It increases in entropy. But time is more than that. Time is the, 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 the thing that we live our lives within. Um, and the only reason that we perceive time in this particular way is because the way our eyes work. The critical fusion facility of the eye, I think, is about 20, 24 or 25 images per second. So all the time your eye, it's like taking photographs 24 times, 25 times a second, and you give the illusion of movement. But at any one moment, everything is static. So the illusion of movement, the many, many things. Again, I'd strongly advise anybody, if they're interested in the deep philosophy of time, a guy called Julian Barber wrote a book called The End of Time about 20 years ago. Really, really interesting book because he argues again that time is an illusion, which is what Einstein himself said. Time is an illusion, but a very persistent one. Time and space are the same things. They are part of the same thing. It's space-time. Minkowski came up with the idea of block time, the idea that that, that time is a block that we move through in somewhere or another. And I think time is the secret. And this is, I think, this is the secret of immortality. We die in time. But we know that when somebody has a near-death experience or takes entheogens, takes dimethyltryptamine, takes ketamine, various other substances, time just goes out the window. When somebody takes cannabis, time just, we know it's flexible. We know it expands outwards. Mm. So imagine at the final moments of your life, Time expands massively, but from the viewpoint of somebody else, you die. But you're existing in your own time. And I think this is of profound importance. And again, I wrote a book on uh, J.B. Priestley um, a few years ago. And J.B. Priestley was a great writer who did a series of plays based upon time perception. And I strongly, strongly advise, please check out his play, Time and the Conways. This was written in 1937, and yet it is as good as any science fiction movie you will ever see today. And its philosophy is rock solid. It's fascinating. Do you, do you have any, to go a little bit deeper, deeper, do you have any theories around why time does that? Because it seems to be that, um, it seems to be that sort of, because the more that you... It's, it seems like it's very dependent upon on the on the beliefs that we hold within ourselves. You know, the more that you you become more um, subject to the, the greater mysteries of life. You know, time starts to you, you start to see time in a, in a very in a very different way. So, I'll just maybe a question around it. Do you think it's it's could it be subject to our reality or our, our beliefs that we hold in our mind as well? Oh yeah, the, again the argument that our belief structure, our external reality. Mm-hmm. Our, our beliefs and our expectations. Um, I was discussing earlier with Laura, you know, there's, there's a concept called the Saper-Whorf hypothesis about the way in which language itself structures the way we think. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a very valid point. Um, and myself and again and a few other people were working on trying to carry this forward in terms of subjective perceptions and the way the brain perceives things. For instance, we know that if you are given bad news, Time seems to stop. Time seems to slow down. You know how that feeling of what's just happened with time here? It's suddenly become flexible and strange and peculiar. And it's because we, our expectations, our moods, and also, funnily enough, and interestingly enough, our metabolism. Um, Hudson Hoagland, I think it was Hudson Hoagland, was um, a doctor who discovered many years ago his wife had a fever. And he noticed that her perception of time was, he'd gone away for only 10 minutes to actually get some drugs for her. And when he came back, she thought he'd been away for hours. And it's because of her metabolism. 
And again, various other writers have picked up on this, you know, sort of Rodney Collin was quite a famous uh, writer in the 1950s. And Rodney Collin came up with a very similar idea. Time changes as we get older. As we get older, time seems to go faster. It seems to go faster and faster and faster. And it's argued that it goes on times of seven years. So the first seven years of your life takes as long as the whole of the rest of your life. You know, because it seems, you know, those summer days when you were a kid went on forever. The school holidays went on forever, whereas nowadays, six weeks, it's gone. It's gone. And this is, again, because of subjectivity of time. Because as uh, Henri Bergson, the French French philosopher, said, there are two types of time. There's long and durée. There's the external clock time. And then there's the internal metabolic time that we all exist upon. And this is an area that really we need to look into more. But how can you ever... And this is one of the problems with time. Time is the only thing I know that's measured by itself. You can have a pound of apples. Somebody can be six foot three inches tall, but you can only ever have a minute of a minute. You can't ever time much time against time. And this is again something that John William Dunn, um, an Irish Anglo-Irish philosopher in the 1920s came up with the idea that there are different types of time and they're all measured against each other. He called it serial time and the idea. And I use the analogy here. A river is flowing. Imagine that the time is a river. Marcus Aurelius said this, the time is a river and it flows. But you need a reference point to know that a river is flowing. You know a river is flowing because you look at the riverbanks, don't you? You look at the riverbank and you see the river flowing. If there were no riverbanks and you're in the river, you've got no way of knowing how time is going fast or slow. If time suddenly sped up for you now and slowed down for me, we couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. Because objective, t- objective time would remain the same. It's just your minute would seem to be longer. And that's the only difference. Well, that's powerful stuff, by the way. And just to ch- try and change it up again, something, another question I want to ask you off the last time we spoke, I remember in my mind, you were mentioning about doing the, um, trying eye gazing. Have you, did you look at any, any mythology behind that of eye gazing and things like that? Of? Eye gazing, eye gazing. Eye, my accent, eyes gazing. Oh, oh, oh eye gazing. <laughs> yeah, oh. eye gazing. <laughs> no, funnily enough, we had, we, we'd planned to do that, but because of lockdown occurred almost within days yeah. of us last meeting, mm-hmm. I haven't had the chance to pursue this, but it's something that I really want to do. Yes. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know if you looked at any of the mythology behind it, because you, if you were seeing, I know that normally you do a lot of research behind it, but it's just, it's fascinating to me because... With um, I mean, I've been I've been experience, experiencing with it a lot lately, and also as well. For example, when we do when you do a podcast, you know, it's a very intense intense thing. Yeah. You know, you're talking about these deep topics and things, but there seems to be something with the um, with this with I know the ancient cultures in the past talked about how the the eyes are the seat of the soul. You know, and there's something that I don't know if you've ever come across any information in regards to that, like any sort of maybe philosophers that who have spoke about it. It's well, quite hard to find information on it when I've looked. One of the most interesting researchers that's that's alive at the moment is a guy called Istvan Bokken, who is a Hungarian um, vision expert. And he's been doing work and he's actually proven that light is given off by the eyes. Mm-hmm. Biophotons come out from the eyes into the external world. So when we turn around and we look into somebody's eyes and say their, their eyes were alive, yeah. it's because we're picking up the inner something. It's the light coming out of their eyes. Um, whereas you are other people you meet, there seems to be their eyes seem to be dead. In fact, as, as a, a, a disturbing aside, I, I once met at a party uh, a contract killer. I didn't know at the time he was somebody who actually mm-hmm. was a contract murderer. And he's the only human being I've ever met whose eyes were dead. Oh. He was a really nice guy. He was really friendly, but his eyes were dead. It was really disturbing. And it was only afterwards when I asked one of my, uh, somebody who knew him, and I said, what's strange about that guy? And they explained to me the reasons why. And it's as if we see reflections of ourselves in other people's eyes. You know, they, um, there is something deeply, because it's the only way we interface with the outside world. If we lose our eyes, we lose our sight. Yeah. It's the most awful thing that can, you can possibly imagine. You suddenly are lost in this non-visual world. You know, it's intriguing. And of course, the final point on this, and it might be of significance, is that the retina at the back of the eye, surprisingly enough, is actually part of the brain. So within the back of both of your eyes, there's part of your brain that actually is in there. They're made up of neurons that are brain neurons. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's something curious and interesting about that. No, definitely. I mean, have you ever heard the ancient 
theory as well where they say that you've never ever seen your own eyes before oh yeah yeah that's really cool absolutely and you never see how your eyes move and for instance some of the mysteries of how the eyes work you you are always scanning there's something called sackets which is when the eye moves very quickly mm-hmm. which it does all the time and i'm looking at your eyes now you're moving in sackets but we never see the sackets we never see that we just see have a smoothness mm. of the visual field and the reason we have the smoothness is your visual field is being created inside your brain your visual field is not the information coming from your eyes necessarily for example if you close your eye now you should see your blind spot at the back of the eye but you don't do you know the, the concept of the blind spot i don't I explain uh, explain okay. just to clarify at the back of both eyes there is a place where the optic nerve leaves the back of the eye to go to the back of the brain mm-hmm. okay because the optic nerve is there it means there's an area at the back of your your eye which is not light sensitive it doesn't pick up any signals at all so effectively this means that there's part of your visual field that there's no information coming through now under normal circumstances when you've got both eyes open you have binocular vision so they overlap so you don't you have a continuity but if you close one eye you should effectively see your blind spot now again if anybody's interested i posted something on facebook about this about a month ago because i showed an experiment whereby you can see the blind spot but if you close one eye now you still have a complete visual field even though there will be a blind spot there and what your brain does is it fills in the information around it now if your brain can fill in the information around that area why can't it fill in the information of the whole visual field now one quite important point here which in terms of vision is profoundly important is that you now look out your eyes and you see a three-dimensional surrounding you image of the external world that is made up of an image that is processed on your retina which is postage stamp sized bent and inverted and your brain creates from that the whole wonderful three-dimensional image that you see in front of you what you're seeing now is not what is necessarily out there it is what your brain expects there to be out there or what your brain processes to be out there now on top of this people have this idea that somehow the images go in and they're recreated in the the visual cortex and they're presented to consciousness well a moment's reflection means that's nonsense because that would suggest there's a little version of you sitting in a little room in your head with two little speakers either side and a TV screen. You ever seen that picture as well? The guy yes. behind the eye, it's cool, a picture. It's really yeah, good, it's good, isn't it? And that ends up with an infinite regress because it effectively then suggests that a oh, little man, little homunculus, must have a little man in his head yeah. and a little man in his head. So it doesn't work. It just does not work. There's something far more peculiar going on. And the final point with vision, and this is the, the, the really weird thing, there's something in the brain called the binding problem. The binding problem is the fact that where your visual system is being put together if you see a red bouncing ball going in front of your visual field the movement is being processed in one part of the brain the color red is being processed in another part and there are other parts of your visual field being processed but they're in different parts of the brain but you have a feeling of a simultaneity that's called the binding problem even now modern neurologists do not know how that works vision is phenomenally strange and again i advise if anybody's interested in the science of vision dr richard l gregory wrote a series of books on vision and with vision in mind is really worth reading because it really brings home to you that even the most basic perception that we all have is profoundly profoundly mysterious and evidential of a much deeper reality and a much in more interesting relationship between your inner consciousness and the external world wow powerful stuff and then just i want to sort of bring this to end as well i, I remember a while ago when we, we did the first ever podcast we did i don't know if you remember on zoom uh, sorry skype it was years ago and you mentioned this story because i think it just it's a beautiful story just to end, bring the uh, the podcast to end because it, it just sort of signifies uh, for me anyway i feel it signifies a lot of the questions that me and you were both asking and a lot of the listeners were asking i remember you told the story about uh, the the anthropologist called benny shannon can you yes, remember that yes. could you just just break that down because it was a long time ago that was on the podcast and a lot of the new listeners may have never ever went back and heard that story and i just think it's a it's a story that's always permeated from your life you know so i would, I would love you if you could just say it's it again simply beautiful benny shannon 
uh, wrote a book called The Antipodes of the Mind, um, which is about his experiences with dimethyltryptamine and his visits to Latin America. And in one of the, se- the opening sections of the book, he, he had a, a discussion with uh, uh, a shaman who was also an ice cream salesman, which is really, really beautiful, the idea of his shaman, but he was an ice cream salesman. And the shaman told a story, and the story is the idea of God wanted to hide the great secret of existence, but he didn't want necessarily man to find out until man was ready. So God thought and thought, well, where am I going to put this great secret? I'll place it in the deepest parts of the ocean. And then God thought, but man will eventually create submarines and he'll go down and he'll find it. Maybe I'll place it on the moon. And he places the great secret on the moon. And then he realizes that given time, man will create rocket ships and will go to the moon and he'll find it. And then God finally concluded that I'm going to place the great secret of reality and everything in the one place that, God, that man will never, ever think of looking deep in his own mind. And I think that is one of the most wonderful stories. And I would like to believe that that secret is the pineal gland that sits in the deepest, darkest part of the brain, the smallest, tiniest, non-divided object in the brain. And I think that's where the huge secrets lie. We'll leave it there. Boom, as always. <laughs> Absolutely amazing again. Thank you so much again, Anthony. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks so much, guys, for checking out that conversation with Anthony Peak. If you can, guys, as always, check out Anthony's books. He really does have some awesome books out there. So if you can, guys, check out the, check out some of his books because I've read many of them and they are really are awesome. And I really do love Anthony's work, and I'm always would I always love sharing his um, research on the podcast because he really is, in my opinion, one of the best researchers in, so in into some of the biggest mysteries of life. And I love diving into them anyway. If you can, guys, check out the one-off donation option or the Patreon page. Really goes such a long way to help support this podcast and help me to keep doing what I'm doing, bringing you these amazing conversations. So anyway, just to play this podcast out as I always do, I'm going to play a song called Emerald Rush by an, author, by an artist called John Hopkins. It really is a cool one. So anyway, enjoy this beast of a song called Emerald Rush by John John Hopkins. I'm sure you will love it. Peace out wherever you are in the world. Keep singing.